Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, A Portrait of Christian Faithfulness, with a message entitled, The Man Who Loved to Be First. So let's turn in our Bibles to 3 John, verses 9 and 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. No matter when you were born, almost all Americans and North Americans know something about Watergate. Watergate was a political scandal that changed the way people who live in democracies all over the world think about political leaders. You see, Watergate showed us that you can't trust what politicians say. At least that's how great many people have thought after Watergate. You know, of all the people involved in the scandal that brought down the United States president, I say all the people from the president on down, one of the figures that sticks out in my mind was Gordon Liddy. He was a former FBI agent and he was the chief operative or the leader of a group of five men who actually physically broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Hotel. Liddy was eventually convicted of conspiracy, burglary, and illegal wiretapping. And that was all a part of an attempt by the Nixon administration to get dirt on their Democratic rivals in order to win the next election. And Liddy, for his part in the plot, was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but only actually served four and a half years because President Carter eventually pardoned him. What's interesting to me is that after Liddy was released from prison, well, listen to what he said. He said, I have found within myself all I need and all I ever shall need. I'm a man of great faith, but my faith is in George Gordon Liddy. I have never failed me. That doesn't sound very remorseful, and it does sound like he is a god, his own god. And of course, that proves how resolutely blind this man actually was. Yeah, Gordon Liddy, you actually did fail yourself. I wonder whether you noticed that. You went to jail. How many of you know someone like that? Perhaps they're not as brazen in the way they say it, but the sentiment is there. And here's another sad fact. The Christian church has men and women, I suppose, who who have the attitude of Gordon Liddy. Outwardly, they pretend to believe in God, but inwardly, they don't just believe in themselves. Inwardly, they're power players who do what needs to be done to get their way. They're known for dirty tricks and arrogance and willingness to slander others and always seem to end up on top. They control local churches, and it's their influence that has dominated a local church for years and even decades. They are the reason the local church has not grown or reached out to the lost. They have ground up pastors. They've maintained their position of influence. For them, the church is their little power theater. For them, power is all they've ever wanted, even while they adamantly deny it. They never seem to step down from their position, at least not of their own accord. And they manipulate and they control. They often have secret meetings in which the business of the church gets decided long before anyone else ever shows up at the business meeting. Well, we've been studying 3 John, which I have said really is a wonderful book about faithful Christians who are not pastors or teachers or missionaries or necessarily leaders at all. But their impact for Christ is significant and may not be recognized by others, but it is recognized by God. This is of great encouragement to all who seek to be faithful and who simply view themselves as just, you know, regular, everyday Christians. 
And so as we read 3 John, we come upon one of these, on the outside, seemingly ordinary Christians, and his name was Gaius. And yet, as we've seen from God's perspective, the final reward that Gaius will receive when when he stands before God is, is as great as the Christian leaders that he has supported and encouraged. But today we turn from Gaius to another kind of person in the church, and this man is an insidious power player. His name is Diotrephes. So let's read about him in 3 John verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Let's step back and remember the context of 3 John. We've noticed in our study of 3 John that in those days, that is, before the New Testament writings had been completed, before the New Testament was available for every church to study, that the apostles were concerned that the local church should avoid false teaching and should be centered on the truth of Christ and should reflect the gospel and should be teaching that, you know, we're saved by grace alone through Christ alone and by faith alone. Now, we do know that there was a great struggle to protect this gospel, and in order to do so, the apostles trained what we today might call itinerant preachers. These had been preachers and teachers and missionaries and evangelists, and we get a hint of that in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. It says, what you have heard in me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You know, furthermore, we get the sense from reading both 2nd and 3rd John that these teachers received letters of recommendation either from the apostles or from recognized churches. Indeed, one of the phrases you might look for when, when you're studying the New Testament is the phrase, to send them on their way. You know, here's some examples. In Acts 15, we see a dispute with false teachers who teach that unless the Gentiles are circumcised, the Gentiles won't be saved. And so Acts 15 verse 3 says of Paul and Barnabas, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So there's the phrase, they were sent on their way. That is, they were sent from a legitimate source. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 11, in which the Corinthian church is given instructions regarding Timothy. It says, help him on his way. That's what Paul says. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So you get the idea. Legitimate Christian teachers were sent out. They were sent on their way by either faithful churches or by legitimate apostles. No teacher was to be trusted who was not legitimate in that sense. You wouldn't want to trust your eternal soul to a self-appointed teacher. And that's what we found when we began to read about this godly and faithful brother by the name of Gaius. He resolutely refused to accept any teacher in his home who was not legitimate. But on the other hand, he was welcoming and extremely helpful to teachers of the truth. Now, in contrast, John, who writes this letter, compares faithful Gaius to faithless Diotrephes. Diotrephes, the power player. Diotrephes, who controls his local church. Diotrephes, who does not bow to the authority of the apostles. And as we've already read, John utterly blasts this man, Diotrephes. 
He calls him the one who loves to be first or a man who's obsessed with his own position and power. Diotrephes can't imagine his local church not being under his control. I wonder, does that surprise you? I mean, does it surprise you how brutally John speaks about this man? Now, as you might know, the three letters of John, that is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, are normally thought of as love letters. Well, they are. These three short letters, John uses the word love no fewer than 31 times. Those Bible teachers who have studied each individual occurrence of love in John's letters tell us that the most of the occurrence of love in these letters, that is how John uses the word, speaks about the love of God. But it also speaks about believers' love for God and believers' love for one another. And it tells us that if we abide in God, we abide in love. And it is this truth about love that leads to three occurrences of a phrase that begins with the words, if we say. So we listen to 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness. Well then, what then? Well, we deceive ourselves. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned. Well, we call God a liar because, you know, God says we've sinned. And so John continually calls on God's people not only to love God whom they have not seen, but also to love their brothers whom they do see. And that might lead us to wonder, I mean, why in the world would he speak so unlovingly about this man named Diotrephes? Well, I hope you see that these wonderful loving books written by John have an edge to them. Not only does John continually use the word love, You know, five times in these writings, he uses the word hate. Don't be surprised, he says, if the world hates you. And then if we go to the book of Revelation, which is also written by John, John records Jesus saying that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So why am I saying all of that? I'm saying it because it may sound surprising to hear the man who writes about love more than anyone else be so overwhelmingly harsh and seemingly unloving in his condemnation of a man named Diotrephes. But here's the question about love. Would John be loving if he failed to confront Diotrephes? No, he would not. Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? With your consistent support as a monthly partner or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. What if Diotrephes was a part of something that that brought great harm to the church? What if the only way to protect the faith of untold thousands was to take 
dietary fees down. Would it not be profoundly unloving to allow this power broker to continue to get his way when the results of his ego was hurting the cause of Christ? No, no. I would argue that John has to take dietary fees down. To fail to do so would be an unloving act. Ah, well then, what's Diotrephes doing? And why is he such a bad man? And more from this, is there a way to recognize the spirit of Diotrephes today? And what should God's people do about that? Well, let's take all of these questions one step at a time. Let's do an analysis of this man. We notice that John has told us that he loves to be first. Well, that's, that's an easy charge to make. But John's not trading in slander. He has, as we will see, three reasons for calling Diotrephes a self-willed man. First, notice that John mentions that Diotrephes does not acknowledge the authority of the apostles. And then, in order to get his way, Diotrephes, says John, is talking wicked nonsense about us. The actual Greek word here is that he is gossiping maliciously or gossiping evil words. That is, Diotrephes knows how to resist legitimate authority, that is, the authority of the apostles. He does it by spreading rumors against God's servants. He's a slanderer. Now, here we must tread carefully, but it is important to explore this matter fully. We all know today that there are excellent preachers who speak well, but whose personal lives have not matched their character. You know, one recent example that I think of is a very influential pastor who both threatened his own staff and even plotted to put child porn on an opponent's computer to wreck their reputation. Now, if that is found to be true, well, that pastor has to be stopped. But we also know the whole matter of unfounded rumors which have destroyed countless reputations. See, how does one know the difference between legitimate and illegitimate charges? Well, thankfully, the Bible does give us counsel on these things. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I mean, the point is that witnesses must be brought forth. The testimony of the charges must be thoroughly examined. So I hope you see the difference between that and the rumor mill. How often have unfounded rumors or half-true stories been circulated without anyone even asking where the evidence lies or who is bringing forth the charges? I know of one pastor who was charged with being hard to get along with, and 13 names were put forward, and not one person did any interviewing of those people. People simply brought charges, brought rumors without an investigation. And it turns out that Diotrephes was a master at bringing unsubstantiated charges and rumors that he knew would live out there. And in the meantime, he knew that as long as he kept doing that, he would weaken the authority of the Apostle John in the church, and Diotrephes would maintain his own position of authority. That's what a man looks like who always wants to be first. And then John adds a second characteristic of the man who wanted to be first. He says, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. So we've already noted legitimate teachers sent from John made the rounds in the churches. They taught, they safeguarded good doctrine. That was expected by all the churches. That's how the early church functioned before the New Testament was written. Diotrephe seems to have had the power to overturn a legitimate church direction. Again, we have a picture of a power player. It doesn't matter to him what others have decided power players have a way of forcing themselves over against legitimate authority. 
Now, we've noticed that Gaius was welcoming these brothers and putting them up in his house, but in some fashion, Diotrephes moved to prevent that. Did that mean that Gaius and Diotrephes are now locked in a power struggle? Well, of course, John doesn't say, but it does seem quite possible. And it also seems possible that all sorts of people may have simply naively assumed that, you know, Gaius and Diotrephes need to get along and work out their differences. And that's what power players love. After resorting to slander at the very least, they want to make people who oppose them look like they're not loving or willing to accept their side of the matter of blame. See, it's important then that when there's a dispute between brothers that responsible and faithful leaders in the church must do so much more than try to have both parties accept their share of the blame. See, I've sometimes seen this attitude applied, let's say, to marriages. I mean, one partner commits adultery and the misinformed among us say, well, you know, it takes two to tango and, you know, they're probably both to blame. One of them was probably not as loving as, you know, he or she should have been. Well, that's madness. A person who commits adultery is 100% responsible for their adultery. Yeah, perhaps the other was unloving, but if we can't see that no one is forced into adultery, if we can't see someone's culpability in their own sin, well, woe to us. See, power players know human weaknesses all too well, and so they want their way, and so they make sure that the real issue is always obscured. Look, I can almost hear Diotrephes saying, well, clearly the issue is a dispute between Gaius and I not about bowing to the authority of the apostles. So we've seen two marks of the power player. First, the tool of slander, and second, the tool of getting their own way by obscuring the real issues. Now third, it says, and he also stops those who want to welcome legitimate preachers and puts them out of the church. And that is the ultimate weapon of the power player. The power player manages somehow in the end to be the last man or woman standing. John doesn't tell us how Diotrephes managed to have, you know, men like Gaius put out of the church. Now, clearly Gaius hadn't been put out of the church, but clearly all manner of faithful brothers and sisters like Gaius had been put out of the church. Again, as I've said, John doesn't tell us how Diotrephes managed to accomplish that. We already know how easily Diotrephes used slander to great effectiveness. It may be that he brought charges against anyone who wanted to put a faithful evangelist in their home. I suspect if, if that was his methodology, the charges he brought against faithful brothers and sisters were probably unrelated to their welcoming of the preachers. However Diotrephes did it, we know he was a master at getting his own way and forcing his will upon others and devastating the church. Jesus once told a parable about an enemy who planted weeds in a field of wheat. He did it in order to disrupt the harvest. He did it in order that there would be fewer grains of wheat that are brought into the barn. In that parable, it's found in Matthew 13. Jesus called those weeds the sons of the evil one. They masqueraded in order to look like wheat, but they harmed the harvest. Power players are exactly that. They have pushed godly pastors from their pulpits. They've discouraged countless godly and faithful servants of the word so that they've left the church. I know of one such man as good people were leaving his church. He simply said, well, there's plenty where they came from. Well, then what's to be done? John tells us what he plans. In the beginning of verse 10, he says, so if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Now, let's take it to our day. You know, in our day, the apostles are gone. 
And here a great deal depends upon the structure of a local church. Some denominations are governed by bishops, and so bishops are given the power over a local church. And in theory, that's good, but everything depends on the godliness and the wisdom of the bishop. And where that fails matters, well, they become problematic. Other churches are congregational and, and depend upon local factors for the election and execution of church offices. And many a church has been governed by godly and faithful local leaders. Many a church has had people who lead in conformity to the New Testament and out of obedience to Christ. They're humble and effective servants of the word. But when a power player finds his way into leadership, many of God's people might not even notice. The answer to this dilemma is not easily dealt with. You know, sometimes a local church simply doesn't have the means to deal with it. But from John's statement that he will bring up what this man has been doing, it does seem to me we can see the beginning of the solution to this dilemma. It's called bringing everything into the light. When leadership hides their decisions from the church, when leadership fails to tell the truth about what has happened, when leadership distorts the fact, chances are there's a power player in the house, and chances are the whole church begins to suffer, and chances are the harvest is being disrupted, and chances are people are leaving. Pray to God for the health and the faithfulness of every local church. Pray for faithful leaders, and may God continue to grant faithful leaders to his church. John, I think this hits home in respect to all of us because either we've been there or we know someone who's been there, but is it true we have to be cautious about getting wrapped up in our own self-importance? Yeah, I mean, you know, servants of the Lord, servants of the Lord. Um, what does a servant do? He does his master's bidding. And so, you know, whatever the master bids we do, that we must be about. So, you know, it's very easy for any of us to become that. So I, I think we have to resist with all of our hearts becoming that individual and rather thinking that we need to think that the highest position that any of us can hold is to faithfully do that which Christ calls us to do. And, um, and we need to recognize that if it's not done in humility, if it's not done in truth, if it's not done in openness so that others can see what we're doing, uh, then we might be becoming a power player and we need to resist it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our last message in this series, A Portrait of Christian Faithfulness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to the 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Carousel, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca 
laughagain.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.